Today is the last quarter observance day. And as we are heading towards the new moon, the dark of the moon. So since I'm the refuges and precepts guy, and uh, since it's an appropriate day, we'll uh, chant the refuges and precepts to begin this evening. And as you're getting ready, and uh, we take just a moment here, a short moment, just really reflect on <clears throat> on this quality of uh, refuge. Spring spoke about last night how we might really hold this idea of refuge when we do this chanting. What these words Buddha Dhamma Sangha might really mean to us in a in a real way, not just something we. We may have memorized or gotten used to doing because it's what you do at places like this once in a while. And also to reflect on the power of the, of the precepts when we chant, do that chanting. A sense of real self-respect we can hold when we undertake this intention to live as harmlessly as possible. And the power of that in the world, in our lives. And chanting this homage to begin, what, what we might actually hold as worthy of paying homage to, bowing to this part within each of us that is capable of realizing the highest truth, paying homage to that. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang saranangachami, dhammang saranangachami. Sangang saranangga chami, dutiampi budang saranangga chami, dutiampi stamang saranangga chami, dutiampi sangang saranangga chami, tatiampi budang saranangga chami. Tatiampi dhammang saranangga chami. Tatiampi sanghang saranangga chami. Panati pata ve ramanisika padang samadhyami. Adina dana ve ramanisika padang samadhyami. Abrahmacharya we Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami 
Musavada ve Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Sura Meraya Majapamadatana ve Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana ve Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanathana Ve Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Ucha Sayana Mahasayana Ve Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Idam me silam magapalanyanasa pachayo tu sadu 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 I think we often come to a period of retreat like this with some, some ideas about things maybe that we feel like we want to work on in our lives or maybe there are issues that we're hoping to resolve or clarify. Sometimes, you know, we look at our lives and we just, it seems like we see a lot of problems and a lot of things we want to change or fix about ourselves or fix in our lives. And we can see retreat as a time and a place to, to work on all of this. Sometimes we're drawn to practice because we feel like uh, we've been wounded by life somehow. And maybe in one way or another, we've all been wounded in some, some respects. And we can see this practice as a, a way to heal these wounds. And sometimes we can feel at a place like IMS some sense of relief, you know, feel that some healing may have begun. And, and it can feel like a kind of an oasis of calm and sanity, maybe not inside our minds all the time, but, but this place can feel like a place of calm in a world which often seems to have gone quite mad. And often as part of this, we have this sense, it may not be, expressed as a, a, formed as a thought or an idea that we could maybe speak about so directly, but there's some idea that there's something, we, we want to get something out of our time. You know, something, we want to be able to take something away with us when we leave the retreat. Something we didn't have before when we showed up. And I think most of us have some conditioning in this way, at least to some extent. We, we want to get something that we feel like we don't have now. A number of years ago, I was uh, visiting in the San Francisco area where I, I lived for a number of years. And I heard about uh, someone who had been a teacher of mine, uh, was a monk, who was giving a, an evening talk and uh, leading a puja uh, devotional practice. and. Uh, going to give a talk over in Berkeley at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. And I had the evening free. I was able to go. 
This is at least 10, 10 or 12 years ago now. And uh, this uh, monk, after we did some devotional offerings and sat quietly for a period of meditation, he, he gave a Dharma talk. And his first words um, have stayed with me over many years now. He said, I want you to know I've been a monk for 25 years now. And I want you to know that I've, I haven't gotten anything out of it. <laughs> that gets your attention, if nothing else. Maybe that was his uh, in, intention in making a statement like that. But that's pretty strong, coming from someone who's, you know, dedicated their life to uh, following the, the teachings of the Buddha, has made this incredible uh, commitment to a life of simplicity, really of austerity by most standards. Uh, in this tradition, this was a Theravada Buddhist monk, people in the, in the tradition, they don't eat each day. They don't eat unless someone feels moved to offer some food. And he owns nothing but a, an alms bowl, looks kind of like this, only lighter weight, and, and a set of robes. And, and this is someone who I had spent time at the monastery where he's the abbot. His presence is a big, is really an inspiration to a lot of people. He teaches uh, monks and nuns. And, um, you know, here he's saying, I haven't, I've done this for 25 years. I haven't gotten anything out of it. You know, why would he keep living that way? It wasn't just for the fun of it. It's not necessarily really a, a real good time uh, every day. You know, and, and our culture is one of acquiring, of, of acquisitiveness in many ways, this culture of getting, getting things. We see uh, this way we look at life a lot in terms of getting things and our happiness and s- sense of success of who we are is often um, related to looking at what we've managed to get, what we've acquired. And on retreat, we can find sometimes that, that some of this attitude has come along with us. You know, it's, it's deeply conditioned to look at things this way, at least in some extent. And, you know, we go to a lot of trouble to come to a retreat like this, don't we? We give up a lot. And we want something to show for it. We want to get something, something to show for the sacrifice and, and the effort we make to come here. And sometimes feeling like this can, can get really strong towards the end of a, a long retreat like this. You know, we, we put in all this time and energy day after day after day, and we feel like that we still haven't gotten it, you know, whatever it is. And we look around at our fellow yogis wondering which ones of them got it and how much of it they got and if there's any of it left for me. <laughs> and all these ways we can compare ourselves. And so back to the story about my monk who said he hadn't gotten anything. You know, he wasn't saying that that life had not been without, had been without value. He was happy and had a contented demeanor. He seemed at ease, very calm. And so as he went on to point out, as he continued speaking, the value that he had found in his life in the practice had not been so much related to something that he'd gotten, but all that he'd let go of. This is a quotation from Ajahn Sumedho. The way of spiritual life is a movement away from the distraction of attaining or acquiring. It is a relinquishing, a letting go, 
It simplifies our lives, freeing us from that which is unnecessary. There's no judgment or rejection. It is pure mindfulness developing in the present moment, the only place truth can be found. And this, seems, this may seem quite obvious. It's, it's, it is obvious when we think about it, this quality of letting go. But then it's, look, it's worth looking at, at our attitude in practice and how we really hold things. And, you know, we can spend a lot of time and energy over a lot of years pursuing certain kinds of experiences, trying to get to some often imagined special state or uh, some place, some experience we can have and then somehow keep, as if this were the point of it all. And yet ultimately, whatever we might get out of the practice, whatever value we might find, results from what we let go of, abandon, relinquish. And we realize the end of suffering by letting go of the cause, by abandoning the cause of suffering, not by getting anything, not by getting some sublime state of mind, not not by getting anything at all. I once heard this quotation. It's possibly from Jack Kornfield. It seems like something he would say about meditation retreats, he said, this isn't the shopping mall, it's the dump. (laughs) It's simple and kind of funny, but there's something really profound there. This is is the dump, (laughs) folks. But you know, this can be one of the hardest things for us to learn in meditation in this practice is that it's not about getting something. It's not about having certain kinds of experiences or attaining some special blissful state. It's not about the experience at all, ultimately. And of course, we do have uh, powerful experiences in meditation. It's not to deny that. And they bring energy and they, they bolster our faith and they inspire us and we feel like well, something's happening, you know, the practice is working. So that's true and that's real and it's not to, to diminish that. But we need to bear in mind that as, as, as inspiring as certain kinds of experiences may be, that ultimately this path is about freedom in any moment regardless of what's happening. As I was saying, we can spend so much time and energy searching after, trying to get certain kinds of states to happen or experiences. And we can, are trying often to reclaim some experience we had before, recreate some state. One time I was, uh, during a long period of practice uh, in Asia, in Burma at Pandita Rama, and I had this experience one night where my mind opened into this, it felt like I had the mind of the Buddha. It felt like there was nothing I could not know, this incredible power of mind. And I didn't last. (laughs) I thought it probably would, and then I noticed it was gone at a certain point. And I spent, I can't tell you, how much time I spent, what did I eat, how was I sitting, what was I noting, was it in or out, rise or fall, you know, trying to recreate these conditions so that I could have this experience again. As though that were what it was about, trying to get that back. 
know, we find ourselves trying to reclaim some past experience or trying to make something happen. We have this sense, I've got to get something to happen here to control the experience. Often so we like the way it feels or it meets some uh, criteria that we have for what's acceptable. And so then our focus goes to what's happening or the quality or feeling tone of the experience. And rather than looking at how we're relating to what's going on, we judge the experience as good or bad or right or wrong, or in terms of whether or not we like it, and so the perceptions we have about what it means about me. That's where focus goes to that so much of the time. And in our practice, within our own minds and hearts, in our relationships to the hearts and minds of others, we see how suffering and struggle arise. We see it arising, the way we struggle so much with what's happening, what we find arising in our mind. And if we strip away the stories and the explanations that we might come up with, and our beliefs about what it's, all, what it's all about there. What we'll see is that clinging, grasping, holding on to anything leads to suffering. It's like this clinging in the mind and the heart is, is volunteering to suffer. And we forget that freedom is not about having things being a particular way, about trying to hold on to anything, but about non-clinging in the moment to any experience in any state. That's where freedom is possible. And so the key to happiness, the key to a liberated mind and heart then is directly tied to this basic understanding. And we could really see that this is the whole thrust of what the Buddha taught, really understanding this truth that it's this quality of clinging, grasping, is the root cause of our suffering and struggle. There's a a very pithy teaching from the Buddha. Joseph often likes to refer to this, may have mentioned it already in this retreat, I don't know. One time the Buddha was asked a question by someone who came to him. Often he gave teachings in response to questions and someone came and asked him, can Bhante, can you summarize your teaching in one, one phrase? one line, give me a good one-liner. And the Buddha said, yes, I can do that. And he said, sabbe dhamma nalam abhinivesaya. In Pali, it's usually translated as nothing whatsoever should be clung to. Sabbe dhamma, sabbe means all, dhamma. Translated here as things, all dhammas, particularly here maybe pointing to the five aggregates, the six sense bases, the objects, and the consciousness that arises dependent on those. But that includes everything, so all things are in that. All things. Nalam means should not be. And abhinivesaya, clung to, should not be clung to be clung to. And the Buddha then emphasized the power of this teaching. He said, anyone who had heard this phrase had heard all of the teachings. 
Anyone who had put it into practice had practiced all of the teachings. And anyone who had received the fruits of practicing this had realized all possible fruits of the path. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. The key to this, he said, nothing whatsoever. There's no ambiguity there in that nothing, no thing whatsoever. We could substitute identified with or attached to for that clung to. But the basic understanding, don't hold on to anything. Or we could phrase it in another way, let go of everything. The great Thai forest master um, teacher Ajahn Chah, as he so often did put things very simply and directly. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. As I was saying at the beginning of this talk, we focus a lot on in our practice on that in our lives which feels problematic somehow, which we feel isn't quite right, that that's not okay. I think most of us are drawn to a practice like this, to a spiritual life, however we might hold that, through a connection to struggle and suffering in our own life and that we see in the world around us. We're seeking some clarity in relationship to that. And, And at the very least, there's a sense that things are not quite right. And it makes sense, of course, you know, and we really need a connection to dukkha, to this unsatisfactory quality of conditioned life. That's what motivates us to look more deeply, to try to find something that um, can offer us some, some answers in relationship to that. But unfortunately, what happens often is that we then see ourselves, because we're focused on that which isn't right, which feels off or uh, problematic in our lives, we then see ourselves as someone with all these problems that we need to fix, we need to work on. I'm someone, I'm confused and unhappy. I'm filled with these difficult mind states. I grasp, the mind is grasping and clinging. I need to practice and meditate in order to fix this, to get rid of this, fix these things, these problems in my life, problems with my mind and heart. And then we start practicing based on this way of holding things, these kinds of assumptions. We take them for granted as a reflection of some kind of essential truth about ourselves. We miss the fact that we're seeing everything through this filter, through this, uh, this way of perceiving. And beliefs like this and about the nature of reality are often so deeply held and so deeply woven into the way we see life that they go completely unnoticed and we never see them or question them in any way. It's like. Uh, what Joseph was talking about in his question and answer last week or a few days ago, these, these distortions of view, these hallucinations of perception that we don't see. And then 
as a result, we wind up living our whole life based on these beliefs and assumptions that we take for granted. We never look to see if it's actually true. And our approach to practice can wind up being based on these feelings and and ideas that we are holding. And we solidify the world through our beliefs about it. We spin it into existence through this. We create it. We create a reality. And often this limits us. It limits our sense of what we hold as possible. It limits what we believe ourselves to be capable of. And our world can become quite narrow and constrained as a result, limited. This is uh, from, again, from Ajahn Sumedho in an introduction to a book called The Island by Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano. In meditation, people often start with a basic delusion that they never challenge the idea that I'm someone who grasps and has a lot of desires and I have to practice in order to get rid of these desires and to stop grasping and clinging to things. I shouldn't cling to anything. That's often the position we start from. And so we start our practice from this basis and many times the result is disillusionment and disappointment because our practice is based on the grasping of this idea. When I started practicing meditation, I felt I was somebody who was very confused and I wanted to get out of this confusion and get rid of my problems and become someone who was not confused, someone who was a clear thinker, someone who would would maybe one day become enlightened. And when we base our practice on these kinds of assumptions about who we are, we may find that even though we make a lot of effort and we're trying to get rid of desire, trying to not grasp. We may find that we're disappointed because this basic way that we're holding things has not been seen. We don't recognize it. And we sit for hours putting all this time and energy and going to retreats, trying to figure everything out attempting to subdue, let go of these bad habits, all our desires and aversions. And we never recognize these ideas, these thoughts, perceptions that we've taken on about our world, about our thoughts and feelings. And if we take the time to look at the idea that I am somebody with all these problems I have to fix, someone who needs to let go of desires and and needs to stop grasping, we might begin to see that this this is a fabrication, a created condition in the moment that we've identified with, that we're holding to, clinging to this idea without realizing it. And it's really essential, I think, that we examine and look at these assumptions we may hold about ourselves, about the nature of reality, about what we believe to be true. And luckily, our whole practice, the whole uh, aim of this practice, it's, it's aimed at connecting with the truth of things in the moment. And so if we approach our practice with the intention to learn as much as we can about ourselves, as much as we can about the nature of reality, then eventually we'll have to confront all of our 
beliefs and challenged assumptions that we may hold about who we think we are. And if we start to see these views, if they start to get uncovered, these deeply held beliefs, if we start to see them, recognize that they are fabrications created, not out of understanding, but out of not seeing clearly, there's the chance that we might stop creating them, or at least we have the possibility to question them when they do arise. And so in this practice of meditation, we're interested in meeting the flow of our life just as it is, free of our beliefs about it or about who we think we are. And we're learning to trust this simple ability we all have to be aware. Check it right now. That quality of awareness, it's there. It's a natural part of the mind and heart. It's just as the way it is. It's what the mind does. We have this ability. We can bring mindfulness to the moment, whatever's happening. It doesn't matter what's happening. There's nothing we cannot be mindful of. There's nothing that arises that we can't bring mindfulness to. This is really good news. And there's nothing that arises that is not suitable and cannot lead us to liberation. And so we train ourselves to bring this mindfulness to our lives and we bring to be aware of conditions, to be aware of things as they arise, to recognize whatever's happening without judging it, blaming it, blaming ourselves. And through this process, what we learn is that everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away, to cease. Just that simply, that's profound. We recognize the essential nature of everything that is of the nature to arise. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent. They're unsubstantial, they're unreliable, and ultimately uncontrollable. We just see that. That's what we're seeing all day long, every day. And as we see this, and we start to allow things to just arise and cease according to their nature, then the realization of this passing away, this cessation, starts to strengthen our faith and confidence in this quality of non-attachment, of non-clinging, of letting go. Non-clinging to anything whatsoever. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. That simple teaching. I have a lot of quotations from Ajahn Sumedho this this evening. There's another one. As we keep reflecting on this, the tendency towards attachment falls away and the reality of non-attachment, of non-grasping, reveals itself in what we can say is Nibbana. If we look at it this way, Nibbana is here and now. It's not an attainment in the future, 
The reality is here and now. It's so very simple, but beyond description. It can't be bestowed or even conveyed. It can only be known by each person for themselves. As we sit on retreat, we see that these bodies, these minds, everything that arises in our experience is in this state of flux, this constant change. How many different births and lives and deaths and rebirths do we experience in a single day here? And is there anything in that that we can actually hold on to? But so much of the time we're caught up in the, in the flow of it, in that process of the, the details of it. We get focused on that. We lose sight of the arising and passing. We get caught up in the world of the senses. We're so sensitive and we're bombarded by sensory data, impinged by sights and sounds and touch and smells and everything else. And especially we get caught up in the world of our thoughts and emotions all we think and feel about the world and all that it seems to mean about me. And we attribute a a kind of reality and solidity to it that it actually doesn't have. And And then we try to hold on to parts of it. We cling to aspects of it. But it just keeps slipping away. It's like trying to hold on to a a river or a stream. You can't do it. It just runs through our fingers if we try to, you try to hold a a moving stream of water. You can't grab it. It's not grabbable. You can't latch onto it. No matter how hard we try, it just slips away from us. And if we really look, we'll see there's no river there. It's just this flow. There's nothing to hold on to. And sometimes it feels like we're holding on to a slipping rope. If we hold on to a slipping rope, what happens? We get rope burn. It hurts. And we wonder why. But if we're getting rope burn, the only solution is to let go. That's the solution to that. This is from a great Thai teacher, a laywoman named Upasaka Ki Nanayon. She lived in the last century from a beautiful book called Pure and Simple. If you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch onto as having any essence. Everything just disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They keep on flowing and they seem to involve many issues. But actually there aren't many issues. There's only arising, remaining, and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's only really just this, arising, remaining, passing away. Like a rippling current of water where the rippling isn't a thing at all. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain, and pass away. The past has passed away. The future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the present arising and passing away right before your eyes, and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining, and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment, and then let go, 
that's when you gain release. So we can see this, I think, at least I see this as very directly related to this idea of taking refuge. This evening we took refuge and Spring spoke so beautifully about this idea of taking refuge last night. When we try to hold on to this moving stream, this current, this river, we're seeking refuge. We're trying to take refuge in that which is unreliable. Inherently, it's unstable. It's unreliable. It's not a suitable place to look for refuge. And so we're placing our hearts upon that which by its very nature is not a place of real safety. And it just sets us up to suffer. And then when we find that we are suffering, we start blaming the world and conditions in the world. And we point here and there to fix the blame for our suffering. But the world isn't to blame for our suffering. It's just doing its thing. It's unfolding lawfully. These causes and conditions that arise, pass away, arise and pass. It's just that we've taken refuge in the wrong thing. And so if instead of taking refuge in this unstable, unreliable flow of conditioned phenomena, if we instead take refuge in wisdom, in wakefulness, in love, in the truth of the way things really are, right now, we can know it's like this anytime. In that awareness of that, in the knowing of that, then we can actually find a place that is safe, a real refuge, a place of true safety, no matter what's happening. That's the beauty of it. It doesn't matter what's happening for it to be safe. And so through this practice, a lot of what we're learning, maybe all that we're learning is to trust mindfulness awareness, this ability, the simple ability we all have to know the truth of the moment, to know right now it's like this. And we find this uh, real refuge, this safe, true refuge. This is from Ajahn Fuang Jyotiko, a book called Awareness Itself. You just have to keep being observant of the mind, awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but it maybe can't let go yet of its perceptions and conventions it holds to be true. So you have to focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away, and eventually you'll reach your true refuge within you, the basic awareness that sees clearly through everything This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. Maybe the most challenging and certainly ultimately the most liberating aspect of this uh, letting go, this non-clinging to anything, 
revolves around uh, self-view, letting go of self-view. Nikki spoke about this so beautifully the other night. This chance that we might see the phenomenon of self-view as something arising in the moment, born and shaped by clinging, identification with some aspect of our experience, arising dependent on anything we might hold on to in the moment. That it's this clinging, grasping in the mind and heart that gives substance to this feeling. It's a feeling that arises, I am. And we see it over and over in our minds and hearts. And that's such a shifting thing so not fixed, the shifting shape of this self view dependent upon what might be identified with or clung to in any moment. And it reflects such powerful deep conditioning, doesn't it? It's, it's manifestation, we can trace it back as far as we remember. And all the stories that we tell ourselves and all the stories that have been told to us and that we've adopted as our own I'm no good, I'm so good, I'm incredible, I'm worthless, I'm unlovable. Views shaped in the moment by a thought or emotion perhaps that has arisen and and it's not seen and it's identified with, clung to. And then it becomes our definition of who we are in that moment. I'm such a bad yogi, I'm such an incredible yogi. I'm the best yogi, I'm the worst yogi, I'm miserable, I'm frightened, I'm a frightened person. I'm someone with all these problems I need to fix. How many selves do we see in a single day, even just in a single period of meditation? How many of them arise? Which one is true? And then there's so much dukkha in relationship to this because of this clinging to something that has arisen in the moment and we've held on to as defining who we are. So much suffering arising there. And then there are those moments when nothing at all is grasped hold of, nothing is latched onto. And the view of self, self in relationship to the flow of experience doesn't arise, that happens too. It's just this flow at the sense doors arising and passing and there's no grasping at any of it. I have this quotation I use a lot and I don't know where it came from. I think it's probably from Ajahn Chah. It seems like something he would have said, but I don't know. It's not mine. What we are doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. That's what we're doing. We're giving it back to nature. And really, in, in a real simple, direct way, that's what the whole practice comes down to. We just give it all back to nature. <coughs> we just let things arise and cease according to this natural law. They're going to do it anyway. We might as well give it back because we can't stop it from happening. We let them arise and cease. And and this quality of non-attachment, of letting go of non-clinging, that just arises as a natural result of that. And so freedom then is this realization of the heart, the mind of non-clinging. And that's available in any moment. 
we can always not cling. As Joseph loves to say, it doesn't matter when we don't cling or what we don't cling to. And the reason it's possible in any moment is because it's just a realization of the truth of the way things really are. It's, it arises from seeing the truth of things. And the truth is always the truth. If it isn't always the truth, then it's not the real deal. And so this is, this is such a key to our understanding because the key to freedom, to liberation, to peace, whatever we want to call it, it doesn't come from anything we might think that we're going to get. It only and always comes from letting go, not from getting to some sublime state. I have time, I'm going to, I have two endings for my talk. Since there's time, you get them both. (laughs) I don't know which one is better. You can let me know, but don't write me notes. (laughs) So I'm coming back to the monk that I started earlier, didn't start the talk, but early in the talk, I mentioned my monk who said he hadn't gotten anything out out of his life as a monk. Later in that same talk, he he's had these great one-liners. He said, we're all swimming in Nibbana with our faces pressed up against the Buddha. We just don't see it. And so through our practice, we don't get something that we didn't have. We don't see or find something that didn't already exist. And as I was saying, this possibility for realizing the truth is always here because we are swimming in the truth. We're swimming in Nibbana right now. So it's always there to recognize how could it possibly be any other way? We don't come here and create special conditions so that, so that Nibbana, the unconditioned, whatever words you want to put there, the realization of the mind and heart of non-clinging, we don't create special conditions so that can become true and then we have the chance to realize it. It's available in any moment, and we come to that understanding by letting go, not by having some special experience or attaining some sublime state of mind. This is from a a book called Breath by Breath by Larry Rosenberg, who's the founder of the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. He said, at the heart of our practice, behind everything else, surrounding everything else, within everything else, is silence. Enlightenment has been called the great silence. This silence is extremely shy. It appears when it wants to and comes only to those who love it for itself. It doesn't respond to calculation, grasping, or demands. It won't respond if you have designs on it or if there's something you want to do with it. It also doesn't respond to commands. You can no more command silence than you can command someone to love you. So we start to touch this silence or stillness, you could say, that exists beneath this sort of dance of life, we could say, and all the motion and 
might come in moments of this deep letting go. It's how that arises. That come, some, may come in some state of profound depth of meditation. It might come in the midst of daily activities. That letting go, that relaxation, that giving it back to nature. It could come at any time because it's always the truth. It's always here. Because it's not separate from all of the movement of our lives. It's not separate, but it's, as, as Larry Rosenberg said in that quotation, it's behind, within, surrounds. It's always there, everything. It's not separate from this movement of our lives, but it's unaffected by it. It's like the stillness of the ocean beneath, beneath the waves and the wind on the surface. It's still down there. Even if it's stormy on top, it's always still down below. So this is, uh, this is an excerpt from uh, Bernd Norton by, in The Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light still and moving. Ending number two. <laughs> this one is a very famous short teaching by the Buddha. It's his teaching to the ascetic Bahia about Bahia. And there was this ascetic practitioner named Bahia, and he was living near the seashore. And uh, he had somehow fashioned himself a set of robes made out of bark pounded bark. Maybe he was trying to be like a tree. And he was living there and he was getting a lot of attention and a lot of offerings as a, as a spiritual uh, ascetic. And he started thinking, you know, a lot of people were, they thought his bark robes were cool. And, and he started thinking, well, maybe I'm enlightened. Everyone's giving me all these offerings. And, and then a kindly deva who the story says, had been a relative of Bahia's in a previous life, came down, he said, hey, Bahia, not only are you not enlightened, you're not doing anything that's going to get you there. <laughs> but Bahia was sincere. He was a sincere yogi, and he, he was a good-hearted being. And he said, well, okay, give me some tips. What should I do? Where should I go? And the, this deva said, go, the Buddha is living here, this place. Go and find the Buddha. He's a He's a, a, you know, a fully enlightened being and he can teach you. 
So Bahia makes a lot of effort. It's quite a long, long journey. He journeys to where the Buddha is uh, staying. And when he shows up there, he says, he, he, he's told, you know, he asks around, they said, oh, well, he's, you know, the blessed one is on alms round. He's out walking through the village to gather his food for the day. So Bahia chases him down. He, he comes to where the Buddha is on alms round. He says, um, please teach me something. Teach me. I need to, I need to know. And he pleads with him and the Buddha said, no, Bahia, now is not the time. I'm on alms round. Chill out. Wait till later. And Bahia asks a second time. He's, he really says, you don't know what, how much time we have, please. And Buddha says, no, Bahia, this is not the time. And, and then a third time. And if you ask a Buddha three times, usually it, it pays off. And so the Buddha says to uh, Bahia, okay. And he says this. Then Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. When for you, Bahia, in the scene there is only the scene, only the herd in reference to the herd, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no, no you there, you are neither here nor there nor anywhere in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And it's said that on hearing this teaching, Bahia became fully enlightened in that moment. And he had pleaded with the Buddha to teach him. He said, we don't know how much time is left. And it's said that shortly afterwards he left, he bowed to the Buddha and he left and he was trampled and gored and and killed by a, a mad cow who thought she was defending her calf. And it said that the Buddha came across Bahia's body and he instructed the other uh, monks to take it and for cremation and to erect a a, a stupa shrine over the ashes. And he said uh, to them, your companion in the holy life has died. And so the monks did this and then they returned to the Buddha and they asked about Bahia's uh, destiny and his future birth. And the Buddha said, Uh, Bahia was a wise one and he attained final Nibbana. There will be no more coming to birth for Bahia. And it's said that the Buddha then uttered this verse. So this will be the final verse to end the talk tonight. Where water, earth, fire, and wind no footing find, there burns not any light, nor shines the sun. The moon sheds not her radiant beams, The home of darkness is not there. When in deep silent hours, the holy sage to truth attains, then she is free from joy and pain, from form and formless worlds released. So let's just keep sitting quietly for a minute or two.